The reading of the Scriptures, you'll find it in Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 12 and reading to the end of the chapter, verse 34. As always, may God give grace both in the reading and in the hearing of His Word. So again, I direct your attention to Genesis 25. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Abiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tema, Jatur, Naphish, Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body, like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me again for a time of prayer. Oh, Father... Again, we bow our heads and worship. Great is our God, greatly to be praised, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Uh, we thank you for your fatherly care, the giving of us our daily bread. Uh, bless our offerings that we have returned uh, for the advancement of uh, your kingdom and the welfare of others in need. Uh, remember those among us who are ill or infirmed and unable uh, to attend uh, because of such infirmity or age. Be near to them. Bless them. Keep them. Bless all that is being done for their bodily health and welfare. And we pray that it is well with them in health, as it is well with their souls. Bless our homes, our children, our grandchildren. We ask that we might have the great pleasure and joy of seeing all of our children and grandchildren walking in the truth. Uh, protect us, this church, congregation, our families from the ever-present danger in the fallen world dangers from disease and lawlessness that affect the body and the spiritual dangers of deception and the allure of the world and the wiles of the devil. Bless us individually and corporately to be salt and light, to love one another, to bear good witness to what Christ has done for us. Uh, we all come with uh, various needs and distresses. Uh, hear our private prayers, but in all things may we uh, uh, Make known to you our petitions and requests and wait upon you to provide and intervene in ways that are wise and good. But now, Father, we've come to meet with you in your word, your word which is firmly fixed forever in the heavens. Bless it to us this morning. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. And may your spirit bless the word that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only so that we may live a life that would be pleasing to Christ, walking in His commandments and bringing up glory and honor to Him. These things I ask in His name. Amen. Thy will be done. Lord, hear our prayers. It is uh, fitting at the beginning of the Advent season that we acknowledge uh, the great initiative that our Lord takes to save His people, the incarnation, substitutionary atonement. But it's also just as important to recognize that uh, we owe our faith uh, to our election and the fact that we are the sons and daughters of God by faith, by His sovereign choice, that superseding all of our actions is God's sovereign working in our lives, and the great uh, hope of His divine election of us before we were even born. It's not a theology that's very popular uh, in many churches, but nonetheless, it's clearly proclaimed uh, from the Word of God. It's also clearly proclaimed in the lives of the great patriarchs uh, as God elects the Son of Promise according to His choice. Quite clear that Isaac doesn't like God's choice, but it's God's choice that's going to supersede his. And not only that, he rejects the rival to the son of promise. It's a great story that in the drama of redemption, Isaac, uh, verses 19 to 21, prays for a successor. And God answers with the son of promise as well as the rejection of the pardon me, the rival, verses 27 to 26. And we know that uh, 
the rival is uh, rejected uh, by his actions of selling his birthright. Verses 27 to 34. Let's begin uh, verses 12 to 18. Uh, God made a promise to Abraham to bless his son Ishmael. So he becomes the father of 12 princes and tribes and a great nation. It's a promise that God made to Abraham in chapter 17 uh, in verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, and behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful. I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. So he dies and is gathered to his uh, people, but uh, you and I know that he is outside of the promise of God for eternal salvation. He prospers, uh, but he enters eternity at enmity with God. God blesses him in common grace. He blesses all of his creatures in common grace. He sends all of his creatures, the majesty of rain and sun, civil government, and on and on with great blessings. But he sends his efficacious grace on his sons and daughters of promise and calls them unto himself by his sovereign grace and power. Uh, Let's look at uh, the son of promise. Verses 19 to 21, Isaac prays for a successor to the covenant of promise. Yeah. So our focus is slowly shifting away from Abraham to Isaac. Uh, we know that Isaac marries Rebekah at the age of 40. Uh, we also learn that she is barren, a parallel to Sarah, Abraham's uh, beloved wife. And the constant test Uh, that comes upon the sons of God to walk by faith, even when things seem to be impossible in the spiritual world. Uh, As a man of faith, Isaac prays. Uh, The verb engages a measure of intense uh, emotion uh, in light of the circumstances. He knows a son has to come, but he waits for a very long period of time. It's very interesting, the Hebrew text, uh, the verb barren rhymes with the Hebrew verb to pray. It's a reminder that when we are in difficult times, and all of us enter those times constantly throughout our lives, we're to pray. We're to pray and ask God to bless. Prayer is a means that God has given to the church to seek and invoke His blessings. It's important for us to recognize uh, as members of the Reformed community that God decrees the end as well as the means to achieve the end. Uh, More importantly, it's interesting, I'm sure you caught this in the text, Isaac prays for 20 years. It's kind of a rebuke to me. I pray. I know God always answers my prayers. uh, Not always the way I want. But... He prays for 20 years. I know some of you are wearying over your prayers. The text is teaching you not to weary. Keep praying. 20 years. Two decades spent in praying for a son. So keep praying. Certainly keep praying for your children. Uh, I would remind you that as uh, Christians, uh, you cannot save your children. Only God can save your children but you can pray for them. 
And you should pray early and often, beseeching God to show favor to your children, even as you lay hold of all of the means of grace, loving them, teaching them, being an example before uh, them in love, and of course, waiting upon God for God to work. And God works. Praise God that He does. Well, there's a tension in the text, and there's always a tension to the sons of God. In this case, God answers with an elect son of promise and the rejection of his rival. Verses 22 to 26. The tension is a problem pregnancy that causes Rebecca to pray. The twins, uh, we learn from this text, are fighting in the womb. And they're going to fight the rest of their lives. Uh, the Hebrew verb of fighting is literally to crush. And uh, God, God answers the prayer of Rebekah. Uh, look at uh, verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Uh, God reverses the order of blessing. Because God is sovereign. He can do as He wills to do. Typically we know in that culture that all of the blessings went to the firstborn son. God's going to cause it to be different. But notice again, two nations, two peoples. We are tracing the work of God's grace in a spiritual line. We've begun with Abraham. Now we're Isaac. We're going to go through all of the great patriarchs and all of the sons of God throughout the ages until we come to Christ. The greatest fulfillment of all. And that all who are in Him from eternity past will be, will be saved. And God tells her as much that the elder will serve the younger. The birth of the twins is described by Moses but the theology by the Apostle Paul. Let's begin with Moses. Firstborn son was red or ruddy looking and hairy all over like a garment. His name is Esau. I kind of envision him as a man's man. Strong and mighty. Deeply loved by his father. Uh, his brother is born uh, grasping Esau's heel. Notice heel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Satan is going to strike the heel of the sons of God, but they will crush his head. We know instinctively the great blessings of the gospel. Apostle Paul, Romans 16. And we shall all crush Satan under our feet because we will have dominion over him. And Christ broke that dominion and enables us to live accordingly. The great truth of the gospel and the great hope of the incarnation and the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the word evokes a measure of tension between the two from the womb. Uh, Jacob is born second, grasping his heel. Uh, the name Jacob is derived from the noun for heel. The two rhyme in the Hebrew Bible. 
So the struggle within the womb is suggestive of the lives of the two. And they're going to struggle for a long time. And perhaps the heel will try to gain an advantage by tripping his brother or defrauding him from behind. And we're reminded of an age-old truth that we've been learning in Genesis. Fraud and subterfuge are improper means to advance the kingdom of God. We're going to watch Jacob do that, improperly so. Teaching us not to go that way. God has other means. His blessings are divine. We secure them by faith. And yet this drama will be played out for us. And God using by His sovereign power the subterfuge of the second born to gain the blessing. The theology of this comes from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul. The narrative, the birth, Moses tells us. But the theology from Paul. Let's turn to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read uh, Romans chapter 9 uh, in verses 10 to 13. Uh, notice very carefully who is acting, who is doing the acting, who is preeminent in all of it. And men throughout the ages try to add something to their yes, but I, I cooperate. Yes, I do this, and God will do this according to what I've done. That is not what the text says. God is the total operator here, in total charge, sovereign to affect His purposes. And so the reading of the text, Romans chapter 9 and verses 10 to 13. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For through the twins were not yet born and had done anything good or bad in order that God's purposes according to His choice might stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. They're in this uh, text, as you know, God's sovereign election, God's effectual calling, and God's purposes being fulfilled at the expense of one, but blessing to the other. How can that be? That's the riches of our faith. That If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, He was the cause. He affected your new birth. He regenerated your life. Because He loved you from eternity past. Before you had done anything good or bad, He chose you in eternity past. In Christ. It's the hope of the Gospel that we do owe our faith to our sovereign election. And we certainly owe our sonship to His divine choice. Romans chapter 9. I once had a gentleman tell me that he came from a church and he said something to the effect that my pastor was preaching through Romans. When he got to Romans chapter 9, he skipped it all and went to Romans chapter 10. Why? Because the theology is so absolutely clear and naked in the brilliance of the divine choice that should cause all of us to praise and to worship God today and every day thereafter. 
Because yes, we chose him. But he chose and loved us first. Theology, of course, the new birth. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So how did we come into this majesty of divine salvation? Because we were born of God, John tells us. Born of God. The context is the promises of God. The context of Romans chapter 9 is the promises of God have not failed. Instinctively, there's raised in the text is uh, Paul takes us through great doctrines like justification by faith and sanctification by the leading of the Spirit. And there's a question, what about Israel? Paul begins to explain that. Romans chapter 9 to 11. What about the nation, the ethnic nation of Israel? And he's telling his countrymen that the promises of God have not failed for they were always given to a spiritual remnant based upon God's sovereign election and not the nation at large. It's not a national salvation. Not all of the sons of Abraham, ethnic Israel, will be saved. We know this from Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And I would remind you of a distinctive truth in the Advent season. Christ is true Israel. He reconstitutes true Israel in himself by his power. And because all who are in him are true Israel. Not ethnically. I've just read a text from John chapter 1, verse 13 that's telling us it's not an ethnic issue at all. It never was. God saved Abraham by sovereign grace. Isaac by sovereign grace. Joseph by sovereign grace. And if you have trusted Christ, He saved you by His sovereign grace and power. So it can be said of you, you were born of God. Paul is illustrating his point with the sons of Isaac. Specifically, God rejects the tradition, the long-standing tradition of primogenitor, the firstborn son. If there were two sons, the firstborn got all of the blessings. And we are tracing, of course, spiritual blessings. But the choice is not Man's choice, is it? It's God's choice. He reverses the order. The purpose clause cements the independence of God in sovereign election because His choice was prior to the birth of the sons and prior to any actions whatsoever on their part. I'm always somewhat amused. For, forgive me for being a bit sarcastic. I don't uh, necessarily wish to be, but I'm always a bit amused when people frame the doctrine of salvation based upon something that we do. We do something first and then God responds. But the actor here in Romans chapter 9 is entirely God. He acts and then things happen according to His sovereign choice. 
And it is that way because God is the sovereign. God is the giver of power. God is the cause of the new birth. Born of God. Beginning with the great mystery of the incarnation. And that all who are in him are brought to faith by the calling of God in effectual power. Born of God. We should never lose the majesty of that. The wonderment must not be lost upon us because it's the cause of all virtue, humility, trust, faith, waiting upon the Lord, hoping in Him. All of the great virtues of the Christian life are rooted and grounded in the new birth that we were born of God. Here in this text without question, divine election is causal. God's choice is determinative. Uh, An analogous rival theology in the church today is God looks down the corridors of time and foresees those who are going to choose him by faith and he elects them. Uh, The entirety of that is absent, this text. It's a fabrication of uh, man to try to come up with some way that's pleasing to them that God needs me to act, God needs my vote, and then He will vote for me. But this text is teaching us, is it not? Before the sons had even been born, before they had done anything, good or bad, that the causality of God might be made known to us. The older will serve the younger. He reverses primogenitor. Because it's his choice. It's his way. The promise uh, goes to Jacob and not Esau. Jacob is loved and Esau is hated. Uh, This is validated uh, in Paul's citation. He's going to cite the prophet Malachi. Uh, If you have your Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament to make it easy to find. It's a citation in Romans 9 from Malachi chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3. Uh, And notice again the word of the Lord. This is not my word, it's His word. He's the sovereign. He can do as He wills and everything that He does is just and right. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Uh, The prophet Malachi is post-exilic. Post-exilic Israel, the times were very, very difficult. And the Davidic glory, a distant memory, The nation was struggling mightily spiritually. And the people were spiritually drifting as so often we are wont to do when things don't seem to go right for us. But God is an oracle for them. In the midst of all of your difficult circumstances, I have loved you because you are descended from Jacob. It's an affirmation of love. They respond with a question. How have you loved us? I mean, we're struggling. We're trying very hard to rebuild the temple, but 
things seemingly fail. Uh, many of them were prospering uh, and withholding from God the tithes that they were obligated in the law to give them. Uh, many of them were rejecting the Sabbath. I mean, what's the big deal? What's a, what's a day? Uh, they were simply turning away from God. And God is affirming to them His love. And God answers by repairing to history in Malachi. I loved Jacob and hated Esau and his descendants in Edom. The point of the text is the fact of His love. The divine love and divine choice is what sustains all of us in difficult times. Uh, as you know, I am uh, uh, someone who uh, rejects the health and wealth gospel. I happen to believe that God makes us all wealthy spiritually. Uh, we have great blessings, uh, material blessings, just by being born in America. Uh, but nonetheless, I don't believe the point of God's blessings is to uh, grant all of us material riches. Uh, I happen to believe all of us are rich, indescribably so. We really know nothing whatsoever of poverty. I shared in my Sunday school class this morning that having been born in Venezuela, I've seen poverty the likes of which are totally absent in the United States of America. We should all praise God for the riches of His blessings. And yet, let it remind us all to be as good and faithful servants. The times were dark in the age of Malachi. But we need to remember that God has set His love upon us. He will call us. He will keep us. He will claim us. And for Israel and for all of us, the love is particular and not universal. His love for us is salvific and eternal and therefore the provision in difficult and hard times. So the application of Malachi, the application of Romans chapter 9 in your life is if you are struggling, count it a blessing. If you are wrestling with great difficulties, learn from Isaac who prayed for 20 years and never let up. And keep praying. And know the great affirmation of the prophet that if you're in Christ, God has loved you from eternity past and that fact will never be reversed. It is an irrevocable reality of our divine salvation in Christ. He has loved us and will keep us and preserve us because of His love. John in his first epistle tells us that we love God. And then how does he append that? Because He loved us first. His love is the cause of our love for Him. The great majesty of divine salvation. The fact of love. Thus Paul's use of the Old Testament validates that God's Word has not failed because the covenant, the promise, and decree of election was to a remnant in contrast to the entire nation. In verses 27-34, to 34, we watch the blessing being transmitted. The rejection of the revival is played out in his selling of his birthright, reflecting spiritual ruin. As the boys grow, Esau becomes a skilled hunter. Hebrew text is literally knowing game. He knew how to shoot a deer or an elk or whatever it is he was shooting. Very skilled. 
There's a reason for this text because it's a parallel to Genesis chapter 10 and verse 9 of Nimrod, who was a skilled hunter, but he was not of the family of God. Immediately in the text, we're being reminded of his character. In contrast, Jacob was a complete man living in tents. Again, Moses is reminding he was a pilgrim passing through this world. This world was not his home. This world is not our home. Be very careful of growing attachments to this world. John tells us in his first epistle, do not love the world or the things in the world. For if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Isaac loved Esau because he too had a taste for game. It's a tragic reminder of Isaac. He too is drifting, and yet he is still son of promise. Thank God that God doesn't make us perfect in this life. He saves the unqualified. Isaac is so numbered. And so are you and I, so numbered. Isaac displays the tragedy of his own belly uh, in loving his firstborn son, namely parental favoritism. Reminded to parents, love all of your sons and daughters. Love all of them fiercely. Pray for all of them fiercely but love them all equally and labor to the best of your ability and, of course, the grace of God to transmit the gospel to them. Because it doesn't happen simply based upon their natural generation. In contrast, Rebecca loved Jacob. Again, shame on her. She's the mother of both, should have loved them both, but we're reminded of The sons of God are still sinners. Parental favoritism breaks out in the text before us. Be very careful of nepotism in your family. Love all of your children fiercely. Be also very careful of elderly sentimentality. Isaac is old. He he loves, uh, I don't know, elk stew. I don't know what uh, Esau was hunting. Text seemingly suggests venison. But he gives himself over to his own desires. Watch that in your life. Follow the spiritual. His desire. Uh, What should have been more important to Isaac's belly with the transmission of the divine promise that God has displayed in his oracle to his beloved wife. Again, you cannot save your children. But you can love them fiercely. Pray for them. Teach them early and often. I would remind you that this world wants to teach them. And if you neglect your duty, the world will teach them. Contrary to the ways and the promises of God. Teach them the way of the Lord, which is absent in this family Isaac and Rebekah. In time, Jacob takes advantage and exploits his brother. We've seen that before, have we not? 
Abraham failed at. He grew weak in his faith. Well, Pharaoh, Sarah is my sister. Well, Abimelech, uh, uh, Sarah is my sister. It's a half-truth. You are disallowed to use subterfuge and lies and trickery to advance the kingdom of God. That's God's business. He must do it. Trust Him. These are unauthorized means in the kingdom. What's the authorized means? The love of God. The love of God. So Esau comes in from the field. He's famished. Has that ever happened to you? You've been so hungry. You walk in the door and you're angry at everybody. That doesn't happen. Well, it happens to me. You want now to be the meal. Pray over the meal. Oh, the heck with that. I'm hungry. Me. He comes in from the field. He's famished. And Jacob's going to take advantage of him. Jacob catches him as a point of weakness. He offers him bread and lentil stew for his birthright as the firstborn. And Esau sells his birthright and then swears that that is the case. Later on, he's going to change his mind. But God's choice is preeminent. All of this is acting out the reality of God's oracle to Isaac's wife. It's going to happen just the way God said it. Great application here in the text. Spiritually speaking, be careful when you're tired, you're hungry, or you're very emotional. You may do something that's dangerous to your spiritual life. Walk by faith all the time, every day, and hold fast to the promises of God. There are hints in this text of sinister terms used of Esau. God is reminding us that he is rejected and he lives out that rejection because he's going to become the father of the Edomites, which were the perpetual enemies of Israel. And he despised his birthright for his belly. That again is another hint that God has rejected him. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. New American Standard has appetite. Literally belly. Whose glories in their shame was set their minds on earthly things. Context is bad theology. Don't go the way of bad theology. It's the Judaizers who are pressing the Gentiles with food laws as essential elements of their salvation. And the Apostle Paul is dismissing all the food laws. Because we are in Christ, we can enjoy as I do to my shame. Big, fat, juicy pork ribs. Because it has nothing to do with my salvation. Christ saw to that. The food laws are obviated and abrogated by the Gospel of Christ. But again, the text reminding us of the danger of Isaac giving attention to his belly is over against the transmission of the Gospel. He sells his birthright because it had little worth to him. He could care less who God was going to bless. Thus he, the text in rapid fire order. Notice the verbs. He ate, he drank, he arose, 
and went his way as if his birthright was of no importance whatsoever. The application for all of us, born of God, born of His Spirit, the treasure, the majesty of our birthright must be protected at all costs. We should never compromise it. In a world that hates the gospel, let it be so. We can suffer its hatred because we were born again. We are heirs of eternal life and we are the true sons of Abraham and the Abrahamic promise by grace. Love the gospel more than your own life because the gospel is your life caused by the sovereign choice and calling of an eternal God. We're going to watch this subterfuge play out uh, in the texts that follow. It's a very sad tale. But it is a reminder. Um, be honest about your faith before the world. I, I've certainly failed in that. Uh, timid, keeping silent about the gospel. Uh, be bold. And never use subterfuge to advance the kingdom of God. You don't need to lie. You don't need to trick people. Share the gospel by faith. We have love, prayer, and confidence in God because His eternal purposes will be affected. Praise God that it is so.